0: Cuba. Okay, we're going to jump into the deep end uh, out of the gate and just have this question for you. If you you had the choice, and, and we don't, but if you had the choice, what would be your final words? Like the last thing that you would say to people you cared about, your spouse, your best friends, your children, your parents? Like what would be the last thing that you would say? It's a question that evokes kind of core values. It engages core longings, like the deepest convictions you have. You're not going to talk about your fantasy football team with your last words. And if it is going to be your last words, then I encourage you to find deeper meaning in life if that is your final words. But man, something is evoked within us when we think about our final words. You know, death does that. The great foe, death, has a knack of keeping us mortal keeping us humble, reminding us of what we ought to live for. So in all of our motives, death removes them and kind of simplifies them to the core of of who we are and in some ways who we want to be. David Brooks speaks about this. He talks about these two sets of virtues. He talks about resume virtues and he talks about eulogy virtues. Uh, Resume virtues are oftentimes the things that you bring to the marketplace. They're oftentimes the things that we flex with. Our education, our skills, our abilities, our strengths. We can kind of lead with those as resume virtues. And then there's eulogy virtues, which would be different. These are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. These are character, kindness, faithfulness, care, the capacity of love that you had in interacting with people. You know, death calibrates us and and pulls us into what actually matters. And so we enter John 14, this section that we're going to be in over the upcoming weeks. And it's hours before Jesus' arrest and ultimately his death. And he has this time with his disciples. They've just had Passover. It's the night before. They've now moved and now walking into a garden they're going to be having some conversation together. Ultimately, in John 17, we're going to find Jesus praying in the garden. We'll be getting there in several weeks. But we experience this with Jesus, and he, and he talks similarly about the things that matter the most to him. So we're in a teaching series in the Gospel of John. And again, we're in this section in John 14 through 16, where we're hearing this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. There's kind of three things in particular that he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing comfort and courage, and a call to be dependent. So over the next several weeks, we're going to have this privilege to hone in on these final words of Jesus in John 14 through 16. We meet, again, this great man, the king of the heavens and the earth, the rescuer of the world, and we're going to hear about what he cares about, and what he's inviting his disciples into. So we're going to hear sections about comfort, and then courage, and A call for dependence. And so this morning, we're going to hover over this word comfort. We're going to experience it some this morning. There's two considerations found in the text we're in. Um, The first is at the end of John 13. I'm going to read it to you starting in verse 31. It says this. When he had gone out, so they've left the dinner. Jesus said, 'Now now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So we see this first consideration, which is this we're given a new commandment love one another. It's this simple statement that a toddler could memorize it and appreciate it, yet profound enough that the most mature believer finds themselves embarrassed at how poorly we can, they can comprehend it and practice it. Love one another right? Like your three-year-old could memorize that. But you walking with Jesus for decades are well aware of how hard this statement can be for us. We know generally outside the church that we know that God so loved the world that he gave his son. There's a love that God has for the world. We We hear in other gospels that Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yet here, it's more specific. He's talking to his disciples. He says, guys, love one another. Three times within this section, this short section, Jesus emphasizes this phrase, love one another. By this, he says, all people will know you are my disciples. Like the core like virtue that's going to exude from you as you follow me is going to be the way that you love one another, different as you are. Matthew and Peter as different as you are and the tension that you feel as you grow and learning to love one another. The world will see that those dudes are different, yet there's a commonality of Jesus, and Jesus has shaped them in such a way that love is exuding from them and makes them different. This love that's used is this word agape, love. It refers to a a pure, willful, sacrificial love that Jesus invites us into, that you will be recognized as my disciples in this way. So think back to biology class. If you remember the uh, taxonomy portion of biology. Taxonomy is the branch of biology, as you remember, that classifies all living things. The professor, uh, the Swedish professor in the 18th century came up with this this hierarchy of how we classify uh, life. And it goes like this. There should be a picture up here. It starts uh, domain, and then kingdom, and then phylum, and then class, and then order, and then family, and genus, and species. You guys remember this? Okay, good. We're back into that class that you might have loved or honestly you might have hated. Um, But but each classification brings a bit more clarity into what a specific species and living organism is. And so if you look at a, a dolphin and a gray wolf, different in a lot of ways, similar in a lot of ways, they're all in the same kingdom, they're all in the same phylum, and they're in the same class, but as you get more specific to these animals, there are uh, uh, significant differences between these two animals, and it's easy, you know, it's easy to differentiate between a dolphin and a gray wolf. One lives on the land, one lives in the water, there's all kinds of differences that they have, and in the same way, as you look at a follower of Jesus like we are human like everyone else but it gets to a point that there's something about a follower of Jesus that is seeking to become a person of love that's what Jesus is telling us that makes us distinct from the world like a gray wolf is distinct from a dolphin in the same way as a follower of Jesus our greatest value becomes a desire to receive the love of Christ and to love one another—that's what makes us distinct. That's what Jesus is saying. See, as we follow Jesus, there's a a fruit that comes. He says, "By this, we will know that you are my disciple." And so, how how do you how do you grow in that? It's motivated by what Jesus said, by experiencing the love of Jesus for you. You cannot conjure love for someone else on your own. It's impossible. But what happens is as you become melted by God's grace and God's care and God's loving kindness and consistent pursuit of you, it allows you to be freed, to say, I, slowly over time, as we behold the love of Christ, it shapes us and we're able to give that love. Jesus says a little later in this Text in John 15 9. He says, As the Father loves me, so I love you. Remain or abide in my love. It's as we abide in this love that Jesus gives to us that it shapes who we are to be a people who love. See, the fruit of the work of Christ in our lives is love. The fruit of the Spirit begins with what? Love. Love. Joy peace, patience. Paul says, if you appear to have spiritual influence and have not love, you're like an annoying, clanging symbol. If you have faith to move a mountain, or if you are willing to give up your life for the kingdom, but you have not love, you gain nothing. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never, never ends. So we're given a new commandment. We're invited to love Another, just as the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I love you. Remain in that love. Love one another is a distinction of followers of Jesus. The second consideration that we see in the text this morning is found in John 14 1 through 7. I'll read it to you. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's interesting, Jesus begins this section, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. I love that Jesus said this, because it's him that's about to receive the agony. It's him that's about to face the darkness of death, And the sin of this world. It's him that needed comfort, yet it's him who's extending comfort. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. The very same thing that it's like he's preaching to himself. It's let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in your father. He's reminding his disciples of this and himself. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Friends, in this world, we will find our hearts Troubled. There are all kinds of areas, and each of us differently, that will experience a troubled heart. We will experience being troubled in heart, or troubled in mind, or troubled physically, or troubled relationally, troubled emotionally, troubled financially, troubled with the fears of the unknown. The list can go on and on. These are real emotions that we can all experience. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. He was well acquainted with what it was like to experience this. He knew this. It wasn't just ethereal. He wasn't just some ghost walking around. He was fully God, fully man. He wept. He experienced loss. He was acquainted with betrayal. He was misunderstood. And the good of the Bible is, or the God of the Bible is acquainted with these elements and these realities, these features of being troubled, and his counter to being troubled was this invitation to believe in God. To trust in the most stable thing in the universe. So let not your hearts be troubled. Believe God. Trust in God. This, this, this uh, word in the Greek is an imperative. It's trust in God. It's this imploring with his disciples to trust in God. Trust in the goodness of God, the song we just sang. Some of you might have read these lyrics or sang this song and been like, can I trust in God and his goodness for my life? Your circumstances might feel like you can't. And let's be honest, it's challenging at times to trust in a good God and the, and the realities of painful circumstances. That's why we have to lift our eyes higher and to remember the steadiness of God that isn't defined by our detailed circumstances. But he's faithful in the midst of them, and he always will see us through, Amen. even if it's hard in the midst of darkness. So we are called to trust in his care. You know, thankful, I'm thankful for my life, and I, and I know that I have no guarantees. I was listening to this podcast this last week, and the guy was talking about how we can have the tendency to have superstition in our faith. I might not be putting the same socks on every day, but there might be this thing where you kind of enter into this good groove in life and, and all of a sudden you feel like you need to protect it by doing the same thing as if God responds to superstition or anything of the sorts. We can very naturally move ourselves into a posture of trying to control our life instead of trusting in God. And yet this text is reminding us to trust God, to not cling to the illusion of control. You know, if we cling to the illusion of control, it makes us a tyrant. If we cling to the illusion of control, it will make, just make us anxious and afraid because we have the illusion to think that we can, tr- can control, and yet we don't have the power to follow through on it. So we end up eroding our soul with anxiety, and we're invited to seek to trust in God. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe. In God. Friends, we have no guarantees. We have no guarantees in life, but we can trust that God is at work. In some ways, that is the only guarantee that we have that God is at work and He's not finished. And we can cling to Him. We can trust in the story that He is on the move and He will finish what He started. We can trust that we are adopted into His kingdom and there's security and that we can live. From that place. The beautiful reality of Jesus is that he has the ability and the power to say something like this. He is the one who was in the beginning. in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the one where all things were created through him. He is the one in Hebrews 1:3 that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe, Hebrews 1 says. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus has the power to make a claim like this. I'm reminded of Abraham Kuyper who says, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Jesus has the power to hold all things together, and He is gentle and humble in heart. The paradox of Jesus, that He is fully powerful, and yet fully and completely gentle and humble. So when he says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. He has the power to see you through and the tenderness to walk with you every step of the way. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust. Trust that you're not alone. Trust that God is at work. Trust that evil doesn't win. Trust that darkness won't overtake. Trust that you will, friends, make it through. Trust that life overcomes death. Trust that God is initiating a new creation in the resurrection, and he will see all of this through. Let not your hearts be troubled. He says, trust. And then he goes on, and he talks about he's going to prepare a place for his disciples. He uses this, this term, house, my father's house can also be translated even more accurately as a, as a dwelling place. There's this, it's this place where God dwells, and it's kind of, if you think about your childhood, you might have a bad experience of childhood, but go ideal for a second. You have like a, a good childhood, and, and you leave, and then when you come home, it's like an exhale, kind of back. There's all kinds of connotations to that. You revert back to your old self and all that. Like, I'm not going there to stay ideal for a second with me, but this idea of like you go back, and there's a level of stability and security. And that, that's the what's implied here, that the God's house, there's a stability and security there. He says that he's preparing a place, it promotes intention and care. He says, I will not leave you, but I will come again to you. He's pointing to the second advent, he's pointing to the future glory that is to come. I don't know about you, but if you've read this, you know, it's a big, big house, lots and lots of rooms. Like that's probably where exactly where this came from. I don't know where your mind then goes. There's a table and, and there is football, which is why you believe why you should give yourself to fantasy football. And you're like, babe, it's in the Bible, at least from the song, that it's big, big house. There's a football and I got to learn about football. And so I got to do good in my fantasy football. And so, again, that's not what it's saying, but there's, there's, there's weird stuff that's come from how we've interpreted uh, a text like this. This verse was created to uh, stir in us a longing for future glory and hope. Our future hope is is not uh, somewhere else. Its future glory is is that somewhere else coming here. Our future hope is not a ethereal and spiritual like we become some spiritual, I don't know, Cupids on on clouds like harps like where how we got that notion that idea is ridiculous but that's coming here it's becoming physical God will dwell with man and that's what Jesus is saying It's a dwelling place where I'm going to dwell with you on a preparing a place what's interesting is John heard this and he speaks about it, he writes about it and then in the book of Revelation as he's aged, he encounters Jesus. And in some ways, Jesus even colors it in a bit more because we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so in Revelation 21, Jesus reads, uh, says this, gives us this beautiful picture of, of the city coming to earth. We'll read it together. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is the place that Jesus has been preparing for us. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place. The same language that John uses a bit earlier, uh, quoting Jesus. A dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what Jesus is pointing to, this dwelling place. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to come again, and we're going to dwell together. And you can trust that I'm going to fix everything that needs to be fixed. I am the rescuer. You can trust and me. See the story of God is about redemption. It's about restoration that he will hold us. He is at work and he will again dwell with us. And so the question arises like how do we get there? I want my heart to be comforted in this like how do we get there? And then Jesus says this famous line that we've many of us have heard before. He says I am the way and the truth and the life. He says no one Everybody say, no one. no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, so Thomas is asking Jesus some questions. And he says, I am the way to this hope in this life. Jesus is the way to God. He is the way by which his disciples experience the Father's house. He is the way by which the world experiences the Father's house. We are all separated from God and Jesus has come and sent his spirit that we would be born anew and then being born anew we would have this life in this way let not your hearts be troubled the way out of being troubled is to believe and to trust that Jesus is the only way to life to believe that God has done everything needed to be done to deliver us from sin shame and death in the grave. So he is the way, he is the truth, he is the embodiment of God to us. He is the only way that we can learn truly about who God is. We see it, yes, in creation, but we see it specific most clearly in Jesus. He is the self disclosing reality of who God is to us because he is God himself, the Word made flesh. He's the way, he is the truth, and he is the, the life. Jesus said just a bit earlier in the story with Lazarus that I am the resurrection. In the life. Jesus is the way by which we find life. So what is Jesus saying? He's being exclusive. I know that's language we're not allowed to use anymore in 2024. Postmodernity can't stand exclusivity. Value openness only. Don't tell anyone what to do or think or feel or whatever. But man, the savior of the world didn't beat around the bush here. He just did it. It was very clear as the lamb, the Passover lamb was needed to be killed and blood shed and put over the door post. And apart from that and trusting in that provision, there was only death in Egypt that night. But in trusting in that provision alone, you found life in the same way. That is a shadow of Christ trusting in the provision of God. Jesus says that he is the only way to life. It is entirely inadequate to claim to know God by tradition or disowning Jesus. He isn't just a good teacher. He isn't just a moral instructor. He is nothing less than God, the Savior of the world. Not my words, His. He is not uh, suggesting that there's other ways. Jesus is the only way to the Father in His house. Thomas Akempis says this, he says, follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed life uncreated. So friends, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is preparing a place for us and he is the way. So as Jesus embarks upon this night, and we're going to dive more deeply into the details of this night and the conversation that Jesus has with Jesus. I just want to say that I feel this desire. I feel this invitation from Jesus for me to trust him with my life. I, I felt this is last 10 days or so, I went to, we invited everybody to spend some time reflecting over this last week, and you might have done that, you might not have done that, and you didn't do it, like high-five you, love you, for real. Would encourage you to still do it, it's not too late, Um, but that's okay, we'll leave that there. Nonetheless, there was a question within it that that talked about the reflection guide that we walked through, that was something like, what did you learn in 2023? What was something you learned? And I sat and processed at Good Kitchen, and just thought about some of the beautiful things that I've learned, some of the harder things that took place. And in all of it, I've come out of 2023 feeling a reminder. It's like call to trust God with my life, like truly to trust God more deeply. I need not to fear, and friends, I'm prone to fear, but to trust that He's holding me, that He cares for what matters most. If I'm honest, I, I let my heart be troubled more times than I want to admit. I feel the tension of the Israelites, man. We are so good at judging them so hard for like you guys saw all of that and you didn't believe and you shook your fist at God, really. But like we begin to put the mirror in front of our own lives, like daggum, like I'm, I'm no different than them. I've seen like, I got show up in a thousand different ways in my life, man. I'm so prone to wander. I'm so prone to try to cling to my own power and pseudo power that and believe in that. I can keep my life in order and I know I can't. And friends, I just want to say very clearly it is not a burden to trust Jesus. It is the most liberating thing you can do with your life to let go of control. Say, God, I trust you. Yeah, I'm going to organize my life. I'm going to have plans, whatever, but I'm, I'm going to trust you and to keep my hands open in the midst of it. I feel that gentle whisper of the Spirit to trust Him with my life, trust Him with my boys, trust Him with my marriage trust him in this community and my leadership, to trust him in every aspect of my life, to surrender and abandon my heart to trust him, to not give in to the illusion of control. So we begin this year with this invitation of Jesus. Do not let your heart be troubled. And here's the rub. The more you live from a posture of control, the more you will find this tendency to try to, this pressure to maintain and uphold all the plates and Man, it is such a painful, anxious way to live. But the more you live from a posture of trust in God, who is leading and guiding your life, the more you can find freedom to rest and live from a place of peace. This doesn't mean that circumstances become easy. This doesn't mean that your expectations now get answered. Man, it means that we're invited to this place of faith. It's what John's been trying to hammer down to us over and over again, to believe again that he can be trusted with your life, and friends, we're invited. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Trust that He's writing a story. Trust that He's not done. Trust that He's at work. Trust that He cares. Trust that He's good. Trust that He will never leave you or forsake you. We're invited into that. And He's done nothing along the way that makes us doubt anything other than the fact that He can be trusted. And so, friends, as we begin this year, We're invited to trust Him with our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hmm. Hmm. Father, we thank you for your consistency thank you that you don't leave. We thank you that you don't forsake. We thank you that you hold us fast. We thank you that you care. We thank you that you're writing a story and we are just a small, small little part in that story. But you are at work and you are on the move and you are not done. And Lord, we just ask that you would help us to trust you. Lord, meet us. I know some of us in particular have deep areas of pain and fear that we have. And I pray that we would just help us to trust you. Help us to know that you're with us and you care. Let our hearts not be troubled. Lord, we give you thanks for your pursuit. we give you thanks that you are at work. Who was and is and it's, is to come. We bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen.